Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, have you ever considered learning Chinese for business purposes? Well, in Greater Vancouver, you may want to consider Cantonese over Mandarin or Cantonese and Mandarin. We'll discuss why later on the show. First, BIV is accepting nominations for a number of awards programs. These include the BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and 40 Under 40. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are open. You can visit BIV.com slash events for details. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, issues, and politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. And today, we're looking at something a little bit different. It's a new research project from the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, underway with support from National Geographic, and it examines language, identity, and heritage preservation in global Chinese communities. Joining me with details on this are two guests from the foundation. We have in studio Aaron Williams, Senior Pro. Program Manager, and Justin Kwan, Project Specialist. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank Thanks you, for having us. So, Justin, I'll, I'll start with you. Tell me what's behind this project. What does it involve? Right. So, APF Canada, with the support of a grant from National Geographic, is looking at efforts in Vancouver and Singapore to preserve and revitalize Chinese languages that are spoken other than Mandarin. And so, you may be wondering, why China? Well, I think if you look at the headlines today, a lot of people are talking about Chinese politics, economics, business... But language is something that isn't as frequently discussed. And when we think about China, it's roughly the size of Europe. And in Europe, we know that there's many different languages that are spoken there. Now, China is one country, obviously, but we tend to describe it a little bit more as a monolith. And the one language that we commonly associate with China is Mandarin, right? For, for natural reasons, because it is the official language. But what people might not know is that there's actually seven different varieties or types of Chinese or what people might refer to as dialects. So, for example, in Shanghai, there's Shanghainese. In Guangdong, there's Tiaoju and there's Hakka. In Fujian province, there's something called Hokkien. And these are just a few examples. But I think in North America, the most prominent example is Cantonese. Mm. And that's very much for historical reasons. So many of the first migrants that came from China in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they spoke Cantonese or a variety or a different dialect, different dialects of Cantonese. And here I should make a little bit of a distinction between language and dialect. So in English, when we think of, of dialects, there's Canadian English, American English, Australian English, and they're all mutually intelligible, or we can understand one another very easily. In the Chinese context, Cantonese and Mandarin, even though some may describe them as dialects, are quite different. And some experts or scholars might put that difference as big as the difference between, say, English and Swedish. Wow. So they're quite different. Very different. different. <laughs> right. So kind of going back to that point about diversity of, of Chinese languages, what we really want to show is that, that China isn't a monolith and that these languages um, are spoken around the world, not just in China, but in, in Canada and in Singapore. And what is the diversity behind what we describe as, quote unquote, Chinese? Mm, those are very interesting and important questions. Erin, I'm curious why this is an area of interest for the foundation. I think from the foundation's perspective, it goes to what Justin was speaking about in terms of now that China is in the news so much and people understand that they need to have more than a surface level understanding of China, they're trying to understand, uh, again, to the point about how China is not a monolith, what are the differences within that country we call China? 
this language diversity is something that has really been overlooked and misunderstood. And because that has such a strong local dimension here in Vancouver, and because we have noticed in the last few years that there are more formal efforts to reintroduce Cantonese as a language that is taught rather than just something that is learned in a household. Mm, interesting. And so would part of the project be aimed at understanding why there's a bit of a revitalization? Is that what you're looking at? That's that's what we're trying to find out. We have some preliminary understanding of this. We've talked to a few Cantonese language teachers and gotten a sense of what they understand in terms of the motivation, who is learning this, why, for what. Our next step then is to talk to the people who are learning it and to get a better understanding of, so you sign up for this class, maybe you get university credits, maybe you don't, but what does that mean in terms of then when you go out into your life, do you continue to use that language in a way that contributes to this revitalization process? Interesting. And Justin, you mentioned that you're also looking at Singapore as a jurisdiction. Why Vancouver and why Singapore as your case studies for this? Right. That's a really great question. So I'll start with Vancouver. Um, in some senses, Vancouver is not unique in the sense that there's many Chinese speakers here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the census, though, what's interesting is that in, 26- in the last 2016 census, Cantonese was the most widely spoken Chinese mother tongue in Vancouver. And that just slightly edged out Mandarin. But now I think there are newer reports that say that Mandarin might be edging out Cantonese, um, but we won't know until the next census comes out. But the other interesting um, finding from the census data is that there's other Chinese languages that are spoken here in Vancouver as well. So there's um, Hokkien, there's Hakka, there's Teoju, and those are just a couple of examples of that. Now, what's interesting in Vancouver is really this revitalization effort. So in Vancouver, um, there are many Chinese schools. You know, you may hear that some of your um, Chinese friends might go to Chinese school on Saturday. Uh, they might learn Cantonese. Um, there's also efforts in Chinatown to teach Cantonese at a Saturday school there, Langara. Uh, But what's really interesting and probably the most prominent example is at UBC, where they started in approximately around 2015 their Cantonese language program. And it's actually grown to be one of the the largest, if not uh, one of the largest in North America. Wow. And so what's really interesting there is that we talked to Cantonese instructors there and they said that um, if they were to open more courses or more sections, they would easily fill up all of them. Singapore is similar in a respect that there's been a lot of historical waves of migration from different parts of China at different times. And so when you look at Singapore and you think of um, the ethnic composition there, within the Chinese um, composition, there are so many different people from different parts of China that speak Cantonese, that speak Hokkien, that speak Teoju, that speak Hakka. And so Singapore is a really interesting place where even within going back to that idea of a Chinese monolith, there's so much diversity within the Chinese languages that are spoken in Singapore. And you might not necessarily see that if you go to, for example, um, Guangzhou in China, where they mostly speak Mandarin and Cantonese. So Singapore is a really great opportunity to listen and explore all of these different languages or dialects in one place. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I know you're in your preliminary stages of the work, but any guesses as to why we're seeing this revitalization, why we're seeing demand for things like Cantonese classes? That, that's the, the question that we're hoping to answer. We do have a preliminary sense. Again, this comes from the instructors and what they're able to glean from their students in terms of, well, why are you making this effort to learn this language? And so far, it seems that there are roughly three reasons. One of them is uh, more for people, say, if you grow up from a grow up in a Cantonese heritage household, but perhaps your parents either didn't force you to learn Cantonese on the weekends, as is the, the experience of a lot of Chinese Canadians, or um, or they, they tried and you resisted that. But then one of the instructors said that she was seeing more students, uh, again, that Cantonese language heritage student in their 20s and 30s. So when people get to the age where they 
start to recognize that this is something that has value for them. Mm. And so some of them, it's it's sort of feeling like they need to um, maybe fulfill almost something that is in their family background. But there are also people who are learning it because they're maybe marrying into a family. And so their in-laws are Cantonese speaking. But one of the reasons in going back to the UBC class that Justin was referring to, that their sense was that, and I would say they were a little bit uncertain when they first introduced the program, would there be a lot of uptake of this class? And I, I think it's fair to say that it has really exceeded expectations. One of the things that they weren't expecting perhaps was that it wasn't just students studying humanities and Asian studies who were interested in learning this language. They were getting a lot of students who study business and sciences who were motivated at least in part by professional interests, that they they thought that this language capability might be useful for their future professional pursuits. That's fascinating. I think a lot of people might think, oh, if I'm going to be having business dealings in China, I'm going to learn Mandarin. Should they consider Cantonese just in for certain sectors or depending on geography? Why might one choose one over the other for business purposes? Definitely. Um so many people that we, we heard from are learning Cantonese for different reasons. Maybe they want to go to Hong Kong and exchange. Maybe they want to do business there. Or maybe they just even want to do business locally here. Uh, what's really interesting in Cantonese, there's this idiom, um, which roughly translates to, um, it's like a chicken talking to a duck. And what that means is that people are really on two different wavelengths and they, they really can't understand each other. It's almost as if they're speaking different languages. And so if we're thinking about China, um, definitely people think of uh, Mandarin as the first language. Just like if you go to Korea, you think of Korean, you think of, if you go to Japan, you think of Japanese. But in the case of, of China, because of that diversity we've been talking about, it really depends on which part you're going to. If you're going to Hong Kong, if you're going to Guangzhou or one of the other big cities in Guangdong province, Cantonese can really get you a little bit farther. And you can imagine when people are speaking different languages, there's room for misinterpretation, misunderstanding. And so if people are speaking the same language, there's a lot more closer sort of affinity and and there's a lot less sort of confusion when you get mixed up in in translating different ideas. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Erin, are there insights you expect to be able to glean from Singapore, or is that just another example that you're looking to maybe compare Vancouver against? We're, we're looking at the Singapore case in part to understand what do different strategies look like. So mm-hmm. for people within the community, it could be within a business community, it could be within a, an ethnic community, when they undertake this effort to try to revitalize these languages or preserve these languages, what does that actually look like in practice? Is it classes uh, in a university on the weekend? Is it using different media that people engage with? Are there kind of online strategies that that we're finding are quite inf- effective? Um, so that's part of it. In the case of Singapore, uh, the other kind of interesting business angle there is that there's a big uh, Hokkien or what they call Minan speaking community in Taiwan. Um, so, so what we're finding is that this is, even though we're looking at two city contexts, in fact, these kind of the language communities are <laughs> very, very transboundary. Mm. Is it clear yet, Justin, whether these efforts are organized or whether they're more on the grassroots end of the spectrum? Well, I think what's really interesting now with social media and the internet is that we can see what's happening online in other places in the world. So if you're learning Cantonese here in Vancouver, for example, you can see, you can watch YouTube videos and see what's happening in Hong Kong, for example. So YouTubers teaching Cantonese there. Or if you're in Malaysia or Singapore and there's Cantonese speakers there, you can watch what's happening. So in that sense, we're really kind of globally connected and we can see what's happening. Um, 
of course, not all movements are, are online, mm -hmm. and so there is a benefit of obviously going to Singapore and seeing what's happening at a very grassroots level, whether that's different organizations or prominent figures, or even if it's just, for example, something like like a radio show in in Cantonese or or in Hokkien. Things to encourage people to continue using the language, and I think one important thing is that um, what is the future direction of these languages is really going to depend on on the younger generation. So people around my age or even younger, whether or not they're going to be able to speak the language and communicate in it. And I think that's the really interesting part that I'm looking forward to going to Singapore and seeing what sort of efforts are there, and kind of comparing them back to the efforts here in Vancouver and seeing what sort of these best practices are. And Haley, if I can just add to what Justin was just talking about, one of our early findings is goes back to this question of who is learning this. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the UBC class, and I think if if I remember my numbers correctly, I believe when they first offered the class, they had about 40 people who have enrolled. Now they have about 400. Wow. And this is beginning, intermediate, and advanced level classes. And as Justin was saying, their sense is that if they offered a, another eight classes, they would fill up instantaneously. Another one of the surprises was that a number of people who are enrolling in these classes are native Mandarin speakers. And um, and, and the, the suspicion is that maybe some of them are motivated because they think it's going to be relatively easy. And then they get in the class and they discover that it's not because, the, as we were saying, the language is really quite different. But that, um, but that UBC sees this as quite positive because in some of the Cantonese-speaking areas of China, there is a little bit of an effort to standardize the, the Chinese that people speak. And that is to kind of promote more use of Mandarin which sometimes, though not always, happens at the expense of another language. In this case, it's, it, what's quite interesting in Vancouver is that it's not a do you speak Mandarin or Cantonese, kind of this sense that you need to choose between them, but it's a and, and. So mm -hmm. Mandarin speakers are learning Cantonese, um, just as Cantonese speakers increasingly are learning Mandarin, both in China and here in Vancouver. What's going on at UBC sounds like a really interesting thing to watch and a good barometer sort of to be able to gauge interest in Greater Vancouver. As this project progresses, Justin, who else will you be speaking to? So our initial next steps are to go to Singapore and to speak to uh, business leader, uh, prominent uh, leaders there, community associations, teachers who may be teach these different Chinese languages or dialects and youth as well to really kind of get perspective of what's happening with the older generation and what's happening with the younger generation as well. And after we conduct all of that field work in Singapore, we're going to come back and continue our efforts here to engage with similar organizations, similar prominent figures, similar um, teachers, and also youth here as well to kind of get a sense of, of what's happening with Cantonese here in Vancouver. And once you have your answers, Erin, what's the goal for the information? How does it get packaged? That's a good question. So we have a few deliverables that we'll be producing as part of this project. One of them will be a, an educational resource. So the Asia Pacific Foundation has a partnership with the BC Ministry of Education to introduce more of a focus on Asia into the BC curriculum. And so one of the resources will be uh, to to educate BC students, and this could include Chinese Canadians who might not be all that familiar with this, but just in in that this point about how China is not a monolith that includes the language, and that there's a really important dimension of that here in Vancouver. Um, a couple of other things are we'll be doing some. Um, we're not sure if it'll be a blog or a presentation for Asian Heritage Month, which will be in May 2020, and we're also Justin and I will be doing a podcast. So we'll be looking to you, Haley, for all kinds of good tips and lessons <laughs> learned on how to be successful at that. We'll definitely have you back on the show too to talk about your research as it progresses progresses. One final question out of interest, you mentioned the census data as well as the, the figures from UBC. 
But aside from those two pieces, how difficult is it to gauge sort of increases in interest aside from maybe people who speak the language? What kind of data is there out there? It's really hard. There's not a lot of data because another question we would want to ask is who might be learning these languages but are not. Right. So we're 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 kind of left with with things like data, with enrollment numbers. We have asked the people that we have interviewed so far, we have asked them What's your best impression on the trajectory of these languages? Uh, in one case, it was an instructor who's been teaching Cantonese for more than 20 years. And she said her, again, just an impression was that that it had been dropping, you know, kind of losing altitude in terms of the interest in it, in terms of people seeing the value, but that it's picked up again recently. Mm-hmm. And another teacher that we talked to who teaches in both Chinatown and at UBC had a similar impression. And so what we're trying to do is if we can get some data that shows that, yes, it was sort of dropping off, but then really trying to understand if there is this this pickup, what is it that's driving that? And who is part of that pickup of interest in Cantonese? One other thing I would quickly add to Aaron's point is that um, if you're from a Mandarin-speaking part of China, you might just only speak Mandarin. But there are many other parts of China with many dialects, as I mentioned. So you could very well be bilingual or trilingual, but what's captured in the data is really your, your mother tongue. Right. So it might be much more difficult to see how many languages that, that someone can speak, especially if they've learned it for business reasons or, or other practical reasons. For example, family, you know, love is a really important reason why people learn a language. Excuse me. So I think um, when we're thinking about the data, we also have to consider, you know, it's not just only your first language, but what is the second or third language that people might also speak? Or your intentions, as Aaron put it, which would be critical for institutions like UBC trying to gauge should we add more courses? Should we provide more resources? Or the government saying, should we introduce this into maybe the public education system? Absolutely. Who knows? Yep. A pleasure having you both on the show. Really looking forward to the research as it rolls on. Thanks for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much. That's Aaron Williams, Senior Program Manager and Justin Kwan, Project Specialist at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. For more business news, visit BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>